8, 10 to 12. We would love to just spend that time with you. Um, all right, so I am going to now transition us into our scripture reading. Pastor James is speaking today, and he is going to be preaching out of Acts chapter 9. So if you want to turn there with me. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the word but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. Let's invite Pastor James to the platform. Some of you might be thinking, oh man, it's the youth pastor. This is a great 4th of July weekend. But happy 4th of July weekend, everybody. Um, welcome to Red Hills Church. If you are new, like Ashley said, I'm the youth pastor, James Bush. Um, the last time I spoke, I was just the youth pastor. Now I'm the youth pastor with the mullet, so take that as you will. Um, you might be thinking, wow, he's off to a great start. I'm not. But uh, the mullet actually has some meaning. Um, Growing up, I wasn't allowed to get like extravagant haircuts or anything. They had to kind of be clean, uh, crisp. But now I'm married, so I kind of get to do what I want. No, I'm I don't get to do that. Um, but uh, my wife is like, you know what? You can go a little bit outside of the clean, crisp, which was brave of her not knowing what I was going to do with it. But um, our, I gave our kids, our youth kids, a deal. If they got 60 kids to camp, I would keep a mullet, and I would dye the tips pink. Um, which we're only nine kids away, so take that as you will, whether you want to spread the word or leave me from getting the pink tips, whatever. But I said this to them because I really wanted to go all out for camp because I really value kids getting to experience God at camp. 
because camp is potentially a place where kids get to encounter Jesus for the very first time. Uh, many people who I've talked to, whether they go here, many of my friends share the same story about how they encountered Jesus at summer camp for the first time. They give their life to Jesus, and then the rest of their story is history. And that's the same with my story, too. Um, and some of the stories that you hear are just, like, super dramatic, like, you know, someone who is super far gone, who is now a sold-out believer for Jesus. Sometimes we hear these as the Damascus Road experience, which is a direct reference to the passage we are looking at today. Uh, it's referencing the dramatic conversion or encounter experience that Saul had with Jesus. Uh, and when I gave my life to Christ, the camp speaker had one of those amazing experiences. Uh, he was living the hard life, you know, rebelling against Jesus, and then all of a sudden, you know, he's making you think he's never going to meet Jesus. And, like, why is he speaking at our camp if he's, like, this, like, guy, you know, like, and I'm just like, you know, kind of, you know, weary a little bit. Then out of nowhere, he gives his life to Jesus. And he had, he had you believing he was never going to say yes. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm convicted in my core. Every kid next to me is crying. You know, we're running to the altar ready to pray the prayer. And so, of course, I say yes to, and I run to the altar, and I'm praying the prayer. I'm like, Jesus, like, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I repent of all my sins. Uh, and from that, that point going forward, I was a Christian. And so from my not-so-Damascus moment to this uh, preacher's not-so- or very Damascus moment, um, every single transformed life with Christ is a huge, huge deal. And we want every single person at Red Hills Church to come into a transformational relationship with Jesus. Which brings us to our story with Saul and his Damascus Road experience. And as we look at the story, we're going to see three characters. We're going to see Saul... Uh, who later becomes Paul for the rest of Scripture. We have Jesus, and then we also have a guy named Ananias, who is different from the guy we already read about, uh, who lied and then died. But these three characters, these three characters matter deeply. Because at surface level, we could read this story and be like, how come my experience was not as cool as that one? Or how can I get an experience that's as cool as Saul's? Um, I totally believe that Jesus will meet people and encounter them how he wants to, where he wants to, and whenever he wants to. But there's a much deeper aspect to this story. Uh, this story is in continuation with the whole series that we've been in called Our Origin Story, Journeying Through the Book of Acts. And it's also a continuation of Lane's message last week of how we live our Christian lives trying to love one another rather than reacting out of fear. And this is part two, because last week we talked about how others fear the influence of Christians. We talked about the stoning of Stephen, but today we're going to address from how others might fear Christians to how we as Christians need to move from fear to love as we coincide with others who threaten our ideologies and beliefs as believers. So as we examine how we go from fear to love, we will see three themes that are prevalent in this story and are still prevalent today in the life of believers. But I want to pray first and just invite the Holy Spirit into the space. Father, we just thank you for this time. You are so wonderful. You are so pleasant. Your love is greater than any love we could ever experience. You're glorious. And you meet us where we're at. You help take people like Saul, and make them into a great instrument like Paul. And Lord, you have a plan. Help us see that plan and help us love those who are going alongside that plan. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you look at the New Testament, 
13, debatably 14 of the 27 books were written by the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is one of the most influential characters in the whole Bible, of course, after Jesus. But Paul was such a big game changer in the kingdom and in what the church is today. And it's purely because of what God did in his life and how God used Paul for his kingdom. However, before he was this amazing apostle, he has this encounter with the living Jesus when he was a Pharisee named Paul. And in order to understand why this encounter and why this transformation was so significant, we actually have to look back at Acts 1. Because in Acts 1.8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So up until now, up until Acts 9, Jerusalem through Samaria has been accomplished. And Luke gives us a little sneak peek in chapter 8 of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and how the gospel was spread to the rest of the world. However, right now in chapter 9, Luke is showing us the character who's going to be the most responsible for the spread of the gospel around the whole world. And in this divine moment that God has orchestrated, we see how God can and will truly impact the life of anyone to make them a vessel for his kingdom. God can and will truly impact the life of anyone to make them a vessel for his kingdom. Because up until the point of the encounter with the Lord, Saul was, was known as one of the more well-known Pharisees. Philippians 3, verses 5 through 8, give us some insight into how significant of a life he lived as a Jew. Uh, it says this, Indeed, on the, or circumcised on the eighth day, which was significant because a Jewish boy that showed a sign of belonging to God. He was of the people of Israel, so he was a true Jew, not someone who just converted to Judaism. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, which means he was in the most honored tribe of all Israel. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, which meant he was circumcised, he was a true Jew, and he was honored. As to the law of Pharisee, which was one of the religious leaders at the time, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. So remember, he, when he was Saul, he persecuted, he killed Christians. And as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless, so no one could find fault under his name. He was the guy in Judaism. And as someone who was super zealous for his religious convictions, he wanted to make sure that these blasphemous Christians, so to speak, were not sp spreading false claims about his God. Therefore, he was going to do anything in his power to stop them, even if that meant he was going to persecute them, which could have led to their eventual deaths. And we know that he doesn't mind if Christians die. Because when Saul is introduced in the end of chapter 7 in Acts, he witnesses the stoning of Stephen. And although he didn't throw a stone, he, it says in the scriptures that he approved of Stephen's execution. So from there, he goes out into people's houses and drags men and women out from the church up and throws them into prison. Which brings us to the text where we see our first theme that I mentioned, which is persecution. Our first theme is persecution. In verses 1 and 2, it talks about how he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. Because as he heads to Damascus, he has every intention in mind to go and throw more Christians in prison. According to the historian Josephus, there was a high Jewish concentration that was in Damascus. And Saul, knowing this, got authority from the high priest 
to go in and try to get all the Christians or all the Jews who had converted to Christianity to get them back into, the, into Jerusalem. Most likely so that they would uh, stop the spread. Because if you could get them back to Jerusalem, they could deal with it there. But if they got into Damascus and all the other surrounding cities, it might just spread like a wildfire. And so now, for us as Americans looking at this text and we see persecution, we may not face persecution in the same ways that the early church did or other places around the world do now. However, this passage draws on a truth that has been true since the time of Jesus and reigns true to this day. To be a follower of Jesus means that we will face hardship and persecution from those that oppose him. To be a follower of Jesus means that we will face hardship and persecution from those that oppose him. And in America, we have a very, very, we have been very, very blessed that we do not face persecution to the level in which some countries still face uh, persecution for being a Christ follower. Because uh, there are many countries around the world where following Jesus is either illegal or strongly frowned upon. Last year alone, there were over 10,000 people worldwide either killed or detained for their faith in Jesus. And that's only including the recorded numbers. There's many other places where we don't know who's dying for their faith. So as a Christian living in America, we may not face that same persecution, but it can still be very difficult to live in a society that opposes Jesus greatly. However, we should remember the reminder that Jesus gives us in John 15, 18, which says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. We get to remember that Jesus was hated and that hatred towards Christians has been taking place for 2,000 years. So we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. However, when we face hatred from other people, that does not warrant us to hate anyone who poses the church either. Because this verse comes after the section of scripture that tells us to be connected to the vine. And those that are connected to the vine will love others just as Christ sacrificially loved everyone despite them rejecting him. Which includes Saul or the people like Saul in your lives who are on a tear to try and persecute as many Christians as they possibly can. Because let's be real. People are going to try and get in your way of following Jesus at every chance they can get. It's just the reality of following Jesus. It happened to Jesus. It will probably happen to you as well. People who oppose Jesus will throw their reasons as to why they do not follow him right in your face. And it may be super frustrating, all the way to the point that you do not want to love them back. However, we are called to love. We are called to love rather than respond out of frustration, anger, hatred, or fear. Which makes me ask the question, are you angry at the belief that someone holds over you as they persecute you? Or are you angry at the one who holds that belief? Are you angry at the belief that someone holds as they persecute you? Or are you angry at that person? Because I would argue that it's okay to have disagreements and beliefs with one another. You and I probably disagree on a plethora of things. But, um, and well, actually, in addition to that, we can be even saddened for someone who's not living in the ideal way that God wants them to. But the one thing we cannot do is be angry and hate the person who persecutes us. We must only show love in the same way that Christ did for us, which is he humbled himself and loved sacrificially so that we can pray and contend 
that other people who persecute us may come to know the goodness of God. And when we, when we react out of fear or anger towards the persecution we face, we actually are responding in a lack of trust towards God, not trusting that he can and will sovereignly change their hearts. When we react out of fear, we're saying, God, I don't think you could change their heart ever. Because when you respond out of love rather than out of fear and hatred, you could actually be planting a seed that God is using to change their hearts and minds towards him. And you may never know it, but in 10 years or if and whenever they say yes to Jesus, you will be much more grateful that you responded out of love when you were standing next to that person, whether in these chairs or in the courts of heaven, raising their hands with you, singing praises of his glory to the same exact God. So why respond out of fear when you should respond out of love? Because that same God wants us to respond to persecution out of love with the hope that we can partner alongside him in the transformation of his beautiful child that he created. Which brings us to our second theme of conversion. Out of persecution, which is our first theme, we ought to extend love back to the hatred we experience and hope that we get to witness the conversion, which is our second theme, that only God can do in the life of his children. Saul, in verses 3 through 9, had plans to persecute the church, but his plans were disrupted by the Lord's plans for him. Christ meets him right where he's at, despite the persecution he is ensuing on other people. And despite believing that God wanted him to defend his name for the sake of Judaism, God wanted him to defend and proclaim the name of Jesus. So Saul sees a light and hears a voice from heaven. And Saul and all of his companions on this mission heard the voice, but Saul was the only one able to understand what was being said. And the voice says Saul's name twice, which is very common in a formal setting for someone's name to be mentioned twice. And Saul, in addition to that, also understood that this is the voice of God. Because as a rabbi, he understood that a voice from the heavens indicated that it was the voice of God speaking to him. And also the Jewish audience then reading this uh, passage that Luke wrote would have known that this is God speaking to Paul. Because there's other accounts that are very similar to Saul's, such as in 2 Maccabees, which although is not scripture, is a well-known story by many Jews. Um, In Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel falls on his face at the glory of God. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel sees a man in a vision. So the Jewish audience knows this is God speaking to Saul right now. Therefore, it's relatively clear that God is speaking. So Saul's probably really confused when he hears hears the words, why are you persecuting me? Because he must have been confused that God, like, I thought you wanted me to go and persecute this cult. Um, Because Saul was persecuting Christians, a people group. So why is he persecuting God? Um, And to us Christians nowadays, it it makes total sense. Like, you're persecuting the church, therefore you're persecuting God. Because Christ... Uh, is super close to his people. And therefore, to persecute Christians is to persecute Christ. Uh, But again, to Saul, he believes he's doing a service to God, which makes him probably confused. And we see the confusion in him asking the question, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Scholars debate whether or not he's saying Lord out of respect to the voice speaking to him, or if he recognizes it as God and therefore calls him Lord. Uh, Based on the surrounding evidence, I think that it's clear that he's saying Lord out of God, you were speaking to me. Regardless, he sees a man, uh, and that man says to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
And can we just take a moment to recognize that this is probably the most mind-blowing moment in Saul's life? Like he's on a quest to be one of the best Jews, Pharisees, you name it. And he's trying to stop the spread of what at the time was this Jewish cult. And all of a sudden he comes face to face with a person who he is persecuting, who he thinks is dead, by the way. And now his life is about to get flipped upside down and he doesn't even know it yet. Talk about probably the biggest plot twist in all of history minus the resurrection. And this is for Lane, by the way, but this does not even compare to when Darth Vader says, hey, Luke, I'm your father. So I just had to slip that in there for Lane, who's maybe watching this. And so Christ appears to him. And immediately Christ tells him to get up and go to the city, which he, had he will be told what to do. And Saul, mesmerized by what has happened, is probably willing to do whatever for the God who just met him face to face. Um, however, he's left with no sight. So his companions, uh, who are also speechless, by the way, have to lead Saul to Damascus. And it's just a crazy turn of events, a crazy story, and it's just the beginning of how God is going to use Saul to reach the rest of the world with the amazing gospel of Jesus. So as they head to Damascus, with Saul blind and just listening to where Jesus told him to go, he decides that he's going to fast and pray for three days once he gets there. This was not a punishment, uh, but rather due to the intense encounter with Jesus, he decides, I'm going to take some time to reflect on what just happened. Um, and also, he didn't just fast and pray for like one day, one hour. He did it for three days, which I don't think is necessarily a coincidence. Because, I mean, it totally could have been, but I don't think Luke, who's writing this account, just happened to like accidentally mention that it was for three days after he encountered Jesus, whom, by the way, died and sat in a tomb for three days before his resurrection. Because now he was going to sit and reflect on what in the world is this Jesus who I persecuted want with me? And the three days being super symbolic of how Jesus is transforming his life and he's going to resurrect him as well. Because as Paul died, or Saul dies to himself, He's going to be formed in this new resurrected instrument for God's kingdom. And I think the same thing goes for us as well. Because before and after every single day of our conversion experience with Jesus, we must take time to reflect and be changed by him. Not going on with what we think uh, it is the right way to be transformed, but rather being shaped and formed by the renewing and transformative work of Jesus that he offers each one of us. Is that you today? Have you been going one way thinking you were living out your purpose for God, but God actually wants you to go this way and do something completely different with your life that you haven't said yes to yet? I encourage you to ask God to reveal himself to you. And maybe you're sitting here and have yet to say yes to Jesus. And I ask you the question, are you wanting to be transformed and start a new life with a great new purpose given by him? And maybe you've already been transformed by Jesus and feel stuck or confused how to properly follow him. I encourage you to seek him. Seek for God may be asking you to give up your ways to follow his ways. So up until this point, that's Saul's story. And we could just end it right there. Because Saul, the Damascus Road experience, is a great story in and of itself. But I do believe it is quite incomplete without hearing Ananias' side and what happened there. And so we see that in verses 10 through 16, which brings us to our third and final theme of fear to love. Our first theme is persecution. 
Our second is conversion. And our third is fear to love. We've talked about fear to love this sermon, about how we should not react out of fear, but rather out of love. Um, but besides me saying that, there hasn't been much practical advice on how to do that. And I believe Ananias walks out how we should live our lives in love rather than fear. Because this Ananias, remember, different from the one who lied than died, uh, he was a Jew in Damascus who was a believer in Jesus. And we don't know anything about him before or after this encounter, but we know about him right here. So that just shows us this is an, uh, another example in all of Scripture where God uses an ordinary man for a greater purpose. And Jesus appears and calls Ananias by name. And I wanted to point out how Ananias responds. He says, here I am, Lord. Here I am, Lord. This alludes to so many times in the Old Testament where God calls others by his name and they respond with, here I am, Lord. We have Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Samuel, Isaiah, probably more, but all of them were ready to hear and were open to what the Lord had to say. And Ananias shows that he is ready to hear what the Lord has to say to him. And so Jesus, in this vision to Ananias, told him where Saul was staying in Damascus. And immediately, without any hesitation, Ananias has a hesitation about going and seeing Paul. Ananias says, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Immediately, Ananias' first reaction is to fear to what the Lord is asking him to do. Because Saul, in Ananias' eyes, could potentially kill him. And Ananias only sees Saul as a persecutor. To us, there are, many, there are potentially many Sauls in your life that represent persecution and hatred towards your Christian beliefs. Because they are people who threaten those beliefs. They threaten our ideologies. They threaten our, uh, us by their lifestyles being different than ours. In Ananias' case, Paul or Saul could have potentially killed him which is probably stronger fear than maybe some of us feel, but we still have that same feel of feeling threatened for our Christian walk. But just as I said earlier, when we do not walk in love, but rather walk in fear, we now hesitate to welcome those that Christ wants to change. I recently sat down with this great Christian guy who has plenty more experience in the field of ministry than I do, which is not hard given my age, but he still has more experience in ministry than I do. But he said something to me that will always stick with me because it was super profound. I'm going to totally butcher what he said, but I'm going to paraphrase just slightly. He said, every time you even get that little pit in your stomach of hate against another human being, that means that in that moment, you are not following the Jesus of Nazareth. He went on to say that you may be following the Jesus of the Republicans. You may be following the Jesus of the Democrats. You may even be following the most mainstream Christians and what they follow. But you are not following the Jesus of Nazareth who embraced the call to love your enemies as your neighbor, uh, to love them then by how you love yourself, and to ultimately sacrifice everything to reconcile them to God. That little pit in your stomach, the pit of hatred, it may be super little, but that just means that there's a little bit in you that might be threatened by someone else's ideologies or their beliefs. You see it as a threat rather than someone who is made in the image of God. 
because God made them too. And like I said before, if they are living a way that, in which is destructive and against God's will for their life, we can be saddened that they are not yet transformed by him, or at least not living it out. But what we cannot do is respond in hatred and in fear to that person. Therefore, whenever we get that pit of hatred, disgust maybe, fear of those that we disagree with, those that feel like they persecute us, that we, they threaten our beliefs, I encourage you to stop and pray. And probably the most important thing is I want you to stop and repent. Repentance is a sign of surrender to God's way rather than our own. It helps us surrender, which then turns our hearts to God and in turn begins the process of renew, renewal in our hearts. A renewal in our hearts to respond in love rather than fear. And Ananias has fear. Yet the Lord helps him by reassuring that Saul had a vision of Ananias and that the Lord was doing something in Paul. Er, Saul. And Ananias, he had no idea what that was. Ananias had no idea who Saul was going to be. He had no idea that Saul was going to be one of, if not the greatest Christian missionary of all time. Uh, he had no idea that the same way that Saul was persecuting and killing Christians was the same Saul who later became Paul who would die as a martyr in Rome for the name of Jesus. So despite the fear that he initially faced with Saul, he turned to love instead and went out and received Saul. So I ask you the question, are you ready to receive someone like Saul in your life? Are you ready to receive someone like Saul in your life? This may be the person that has opposing political views than you do. Maybe they have a different lifestyle than you do. Maybe they have different ideologies, whatever that means to you. Maybe they're a part of a different religion. Maybe they're a part of a different denomination and you have problems with how they interact with the church. Maybe you have a problem with the different churches here in Newburgh. Maybe you don't agree with those who want things taught in the schools or maybe the things that are not being taught in the schools. Either way, are you ready to receive those people like Ananias received Saul? They may be greatly opposing you and our convictions and what we believe can certainly be valid, but if our convictions come with hatred or fear towards those who disagree, then we are not living out Christ's call to love unconditionally and sacrificially. And we are certainly not followers of Jesus of Nazareth who died for all of us so all of us Christians could live the same way in love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, great martyr, great disciple of Christ, says this, Christian love draws no distinction between one enemy and another except that he, uh, that the more bitter our enemy's hatred, the greater his need of love. Be his enmity political or religious, he has nothing to expect from a follower of Jesus but unqualified love. Let me say that last part again. He has nothing to expect from a follower of Jesus but unqualified love. Do you live that out or do you extend division to other people? Maybe it's hatred and fear that, to those that we consider our enemies? Do you receive them in hopes that they will be transformed like Christ transformed you? Not how you think they should be transformed, but rather how Christ will transform them? Christ transformed all of us by calling us a son or a daughter of the one true king. 
from someone who is lost and broken in their sin to a redeemed son or daughter, which then makes them part of the family, therefore making them your brother or sister. That's exactly how Ananias received Saul in verses 17 through 19. Ananias obeys the call from the Lord and his request, and he greets Saul by laying hands on him. He doesn't just stiff arm him. He lays his hands on him and says, Brother Saul, not foe, not enemy, not Saul the Pharisee, not Saul the persecutor, but Brother Saul. Brother being an extension of the family of Christ. Because if Christ has redeemed, accepted, and transformed Ananias, he certainly was going to do that to Saul. And he lays his hands on him. And he's immediately filled with the Holy Spirit. And something like scales fell from his eyes. Both physically and spiritually, he could finally see. And now Saul, through the goodness of the Holy Spirit, saw the fulfillment of his God in Judaism through the fullness of Jesus. And after being transformed and no longer being spiritually blind to him, he goes and makes a public declaration of following Jesus through baptism. And God used Ananias because he was willing to say, here I am, Lord. And yes, he greatly hesitated and wrestled with God about this. But ultimately, he saw the need that was there and wanted God to use him to help Saul despite the fear that creeped up. Uh, The hesitation that Ananias had felt here, though, which is clearly articulated by Luke, helps us later see the great change that was made by Saul. Because Saul went from this great persecutor to to Christ's chosen instrument. He doesn't just care for Israel anymore, but rather the entire world. And rather from his own glory as a Pharisee, he's now pursuing Christ's glory. For us in this room, by saying, Here I am, Lord, We can help those that are lost be found by the one who gives them a purpose to live for. And I totally believe that God would have sovereignly brought Saul to Paul without Ananias. But I could imagine that the story would be quite different had Ananias said, nope, not him. I'd do anybody but him because he's a persecutor. He's someone who's going to kill us. And I couldn't imagine what would God want to do through you? Who, what Saul does he want to bring into your life where you could say yes to that? So are you ready to call these people brothers or sisters? Or do you just view them as threats to your Christian worldview? I mean, because if we stiff arm every threat, then we can miss an opportunity to be a light to that person because maybe that person is the next Paul, so to speak. And maybe God wants to use them as an instrument but if we refuse to act, re- interact with them, then we're actually refusing to be God's instrument. So who are you in the story? Are you Saul and have yet to come face to face with Jesus and make him the Lord and Savior of your life? And maybe you've greatly opposed Christianity for your own reasons, yet you want to experience the unconditional love of Jesus and be used by him. Let me just say, we here at Red Hills Church would love to welcome you into the family, the family of unconditional love, hope, freedom from any chains holding you back, and ultimately a relationship with God who created you and cares so much for you. And if today you're not there yet, that's okay. Because we serve a very patient God who cares so deeply for you and will be waiting for you. 
And I hope as a family, we can be patient for those people too. So when they're ready, we celebrate harder and louder than ever before as they walk into the family of God. Are you Ananias and wanting to help others come to know Jesus and be able to lay your hands on someone regardless of whether they, uh, where they're at and call them brother or sister? Or are you neither and need some help getting to a place where you can love everyone despite their political beliefs, lifestyle choices, ideologies they hold, or whatever it may be? Can I just say that it is totally okay to be right there? Because if that is you, where you recognize I'm actually neither of those, I actually think that's a great place of surrender and humility where you say, God, I'm not ready yet, but I want you to work inside of me. And quite frankly, wherever you're at today, any of these characters is okay to be. Because at the end of the day, we serve a patient God who wants to come into an eternal relationship with you full of love, grace, and true acceptance into the family. And the only way into that family is through his sacrifice and believing in that sacrifice on the cross, which brings us to communion. If you have your communion elements, you can get them out. This represents the body and the blood broken for each and every one of us. And if the Lord can reconcile and redeem someone like Saul through his sacrifice, he can certainly do that to you too. Someone who is transformed by Jesus through the sacrifice he made. And Saul eventually writes to the church in Corinth, correcting them on how to take communion. I love that. Because he understands how significant communion is and what it represents. And also, Saul, when he becomes Paul, is writing to a church on how to be more Christ-like. I don't know how we don't see transformation right there. So as I read this passage, will you take your communion with me? For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup, or this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the juice. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As the worship team plays a song, I just ask that you reflect on where the Lord is leading you this morning.